As I mentioned in prayer, the premise upon which Peter's writing is he knows that his hour is not far away. He knows that he is looking at death as an eminent thing. And he writes from the perspective of if there was one last thing I needed to share with every believer that I've met, every believer that exists, those that I don't know, those that I do know, perhaps there in that uh, house arrest situation, knowing that martyrdom is coming, he, he thinks back to his failures as, as uh, an early follower of Jesus Christ, his restoration uh, on the sea, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus came to him and restored him completely. Perhaps he thinks back of the the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, and his work amongst Hebrews, as recorded for us in the book of Acts. Can you imagine what is going through this man's mind? Because it's important for us to to grab onto it that way. If you were in your last hour, what would you write? And to whom would you write it? This is the, the tone by which we come this morning to this passage that that really does exist in between verse 3 and all the way to verse 15. And placing, you know, a title on the passage isn't necessary, but I do it so that perhaps in, uh, in our own personal understanding, we can grab onto kind of like a scaffolding there are things that we can grab onto to help us know and understand what it is that Peter is writing and what it is that the Spirit of God is saying to Christians. And so, rightfully so, a recipe for fruitful and fruitless Christian life. I would imagine every one of us in this room, those who are watching at home, anyone in the sound of my voice that would say I am a Christian, that would use that declaration, would want a fruitful life. There's, uh, there's a family in our fellowship that they have a, a green thumb. And they can grow some of the hugest fruit. I mean, phenomenally big. And you think, wow, you know, how did they do that? Sherry and I have black thumbs. We can, you know, keep something alive barely. But we don't, we don't know how to produce something like that. And yet, do you not want, do I not want a, a Christian life that is abundantly fruitful? 
I don't know that I've met someone that's just said, well, I'm going to heaven, it's okay, I'm just going to live my life. There are those that, that approach the Christian faith that way. But if, if you are here this morning and one of the things on your heart is how I, I want greater fruitfulness in my life. I've turned it over to the Lord as we sang the song, take my life and let it be. And I want greater fruitfulness in my life. Then you're going to want to stick around for every section of this that we, we deal with. How many of you have ever sought, well, first of all, how many of you cooked that are here today? Perhaps some of you know what it's like to be in a kitchen trying to make a meal. Perhaps some of you know what it's like to be in a kitchen trying to make a meal that you've never made before. And you've got your iPad open or your, you know, recipe sheet on the counter and you go, okay, two spoonfuls, one sugar. Oh, man, I missed the oil. Oh, God, what am I going to do now, you know? following a recipe and maybe you've done that and it comes out okay and you kind of get the nuance of how you're supposed to do it a little over and over as you try it again, try it again. A recipe for fruitful Christian lives, I believe is right here, right here. Oh, it's all latent through the scripture. I mean, Genesis to Revelation is a recipe for fruitful Christian living. But if you want to narrow this big book down and say, well, how, how can I, Lord, have fruitfulness in my life that I long for right here in these verses, verse 3 to 15. So I want to back us up this morning and take you to verse 3. And we're going to read through uh, all the way to verse 8. And nine. If you'd like to follow along, Peter writes and he says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will, neither be, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. 
Every recipe has ingredients. And so we're going to use that fact uh, as our premise by which to understand this passage. And so just as every recipe has specific ingredients, I want us to think about it this way. The ingredients that God gives us to start with. Because later on he says add. Okay, so, all right, we probably will not get to that today, what we are to add. But let's take a look intimately as what God gives every Christian to start with. It's like if you were going to, you know, bake this wonderful dinner, you've got to figure out what you've got to go to the store to get, and you open your cupboard and it's all there. So the ingredients that God gives us to start with, the first, actually is faith. And it comes to us in the first verse. We studied this last time we were together. When in verse 1... Peter is writing as a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. To everyone who has, has now has faith, who has obtained faith. Paul writing to Christians in in Rome under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 12 verse 3 reminds us that God gives to each one of us a measure of faith. Romans 12 3. In other words, someone that comes to the Lord and is born again is immediately given this deposit of faith that is the same deposit that goes to every single believer in Christ. And you might say, well, but I know some people have great faith and my faith isn't, you know, so strong at times. Okay, well, there is the gift of faith that is a byproduct of of the Holy Spirit, but coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, we all begin with the same amount of faith. We're on the same playing field. There's no difference. And God says, I know what's in front of you as my child and my servant. And here, I'm going to open the cupboard of your life, and I'm going to give you these things to start with. First of all, faith. But you notice there in verse 3 that it says, as his divine power has given to us. Notice the word has. It is past tense. And so the second ingredient that God gives us is his power. The power of his spirit at work within us. It is past tense. Notice that. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you got 
all of God's spirit. You didn't, you weren't shortchanged. And there is the truth of something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that briefly. But anyone who came to Christ got all that God the Father wants to give them in giving them his spirit. And his spirit is power. In John chapter 7, he gives us an account of what Jesus did on the great day of the feast. And it is an interesting historical fact that as Jesus came down into Judea for this feast, because every male Hebrew was required three times a year to come to Jerusalem for the specific feast that they were to celebrate under the law of Moses, and Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't ever not do that. He came to this feast that lasted eight days, and it was the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast in which the Hebrews would go outside of their home and they would build little uh, dwelling places, maybe use um, various materials to build a little outside dwelling place. And they would stay in that outdoor dwelling place place for the entire length of the feast for eight days. Why? Because it was to remind them of God's faithfulness in their lives during their wanderings through the desert. That God provided for them. He provided the manna. He provided water from the rock. And so to not forget God's faithfulness in his provision they would each year have this particular feast in which they would leave the comforts of what they had as home and go out and be reminded God is faithful. Now what's important is that on the eighth day of this feast, Jesus goes to the temple and he's at Solomon's porch. And he's standing there as a, the regular procession would take place, the religious leaders would gather a, a group of religious hierarchy and they would go down to a water source and they would fill a pot with water and they would, in, in a marching fashion, they would march back up to the temple area and to the steps with this pot of water. And then they would open up the bottom and let the water drip out onto Solomon's porch, reminding everyone there of God's faithfulness to bring the water in their wanderings, which did what? It satisfied a physical thirst. It met a physical need in their lives for God's children while they were wandering. And that backdrop is important because it, it, it is in that setting that Jesus declares, if any man drinks of the water that, if it, he says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. 
And he goes on to say, and he who believes in me, out of his innermost being will come torrents of living water. Now, what's amazing to understand in that setting is that why would this rabbi, itinerant preacher, self-proclaimed prophet, and now showing himself to be the Messiah is coming. We're, we're uh, a couple of years into his ministry. Why would he say that in that moment, at that place, except for the very fact that he understood the religious system of Judaism was not able to satisfy the spiritual thirst of mankind. And no religious system will. Not one ounce of religion will satisfy the thirst in your heart and in my heart for communion with the living God. So Jesus said, if any man thirst, if, if you recognize a spiritual thirst in your life, though you've tried to keep the law, though you've checked all the boxes, though you've done this and done that, and you still find this emptiness in your soul, he says, come to me. And if you believe in me, out of your innermost being will come torrents of living water. He, and John 7, 37, 38, and 39 says that this he spoke of about the Holy Spirit that had not yet been given. And you can follow the thread of the Spirit all the way through the Gospels into the book of Acts, and, and there is absolute biblical precedence for what we call the baptism of the Spirit, that the again the coming upon of the spirit we get his spirit when we're born again and we don't lose his spirit but just as you and I would go for a walk and and be walking for several hours in a hot day and we get thirsty what do we need to do we need to take a drink and just as we walk this Christian life, it is often time for us to fill again, be filled again with the spirit upon which we already have to allow him to afreshly again and again and again baptize us, immerse us in his spirit. Because he has given as his divine power has given to us, passed in. There is a physical baptism. There is a spiritual baptism. There is a physical thirst. There is a spiritual thirst. And the Spirit satisfies that. Notice something else that God has given as an ingredient to start with there in verse 3. All things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. I was curious about the word pertain because, because. And so as I looked up pertain, this is what it said. It's a Latin verb that means to hold, 
to belong and to have relation to. To hold, to belong and have relation to. So, what the Spirit of God is saying through Peter is that God has already given to every believer everything that they need for life and godliness to be able to hold it, to belong to it, to have relationship to it. And think about for a moment what the antithesis, the opposite of those things are. The opposite of life is death. The opposite of godliness is godlessness. Godlessness. And so God says to his child, I know what you're going to need for this journey. You absolutely, I would never just, give you an example. How many moms are here today? Thank you. And, you know, we've had a new child born into the fellowship, Samuel Jedediah Johnson, praise God, miraculously born in the back of a car in front of Umpqua. (laughs) Miracle. Um, But you think about that for a moment. What parent, father or mother, would, would watch this brand new life come into the world. And Jesus, you know, talks about being born anew, born a second time. Watch this precious life come into the world and clean it up and see to it that it's breathing and, and make sure that it's okay, it, he, she, sorry, make sure that he or she is okay and then say, Well, you're on your own. Hope you make it. You can't imagine that, can you? I can't either. And your Heavenly Father and my Heavenly Father is the same in that he knows you're going to... And so I'm going to give you everything that allows you to behold to belong and have relation with life here and godliness here. Think of the human condition apart from godliness. The human condition as we look at it today, apart from a sovereign belief in a a God, in our God, it's hopelessness. Maybe you know some today that are filled with hopelessness. They, they just can't wrap themselves around that there's a greater purpose or that there's something larger than, you know, coming to this world, living, eating, working, dying. We were at a college graduation recently and some of the speakers talked about uh, the good work that was humanitarian in, in its emphasis. Uh, helping, oh, sorry about that, helping those who are 
homeless or unhoused, helping the medical industry uh, become a better environment, uh, helping to uh, improve behavioral health issues and the way mankind thinks. And the whole time they were speaking, I was like, okay, those things in of, of themselves are not bad, but they won't, they won't change the human condition. The only thing that will change the human condition is the very thing that God says he's given to each one who enters into a relationship by faith into Jesus Christ. They are given his power. They are given his uh, all things that pertain to life and to godliness. I mean, what do you do with this? How, can you, how could we not look and you know, are, are you really going to spend all hour on one verse? Yes. How can we just pass by and blow through these things that he has given as his divine power has given unto us? It means you have them. If, if you don't think you have them, let's just get in there and read this over and over again. Because this divine text says that God has given them to you and I. And another ingredient, along with these, that he has given there, in verse 4, it says, by which have been given, past tense again, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's number one, two, three, fourth on our list there. Exceedingly great and precious promises. Now you might be like, how did he come up with 7,487? So glad you asked this morning. A couple things I'll share with you. Earlier in our history, uh, 130 years before 1956, as the Elliott Bible Commentary, Matthew Henry, Treasuries of David were being developed, um, this subject of how many promises has God made came up. Wouldn't you like to know? How many promises has God made? And so there were those that went through this uh, search to find them, and they, they came up with a number 30,000. And the reason they came up with that number is that there are 31,173 verses in the Bible, uh, 23,000 214 that comprise the Old Testament, 7,959 that comprise the New Testament, and it was doubtless that they used those numbers to come up with, you know, 30,000 promises of God. Well, in 1956, not that far long ago, Time Magazine, December 4th issue, carried this subject all the way to the front when a school teacher named Everett R. Storms uh, he was from Canada, 
And he reckoned that the 30,000 number figure was incorrect. Are you listening? Okay. So during his 27th reading of the Bible, this devout student tried to tally up the promises, a task which took him a year and a half to do, and storms came up with the number 7,487. Seven thousand four hundred and eighty seven promises by God to man, two by God to uh, by God the Father to the Son, nine hundred and ninety one by one man to another, such as the servants who promised to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, two hundred and ninety by man to God, twenty one promises were made by angels one by man to an angel, and two were made by an evil spirit to the Lord. Satan made nine as, as um, when he promised to give the world to Christ if Christ would fall down and worship him. Storm gives the grand total of, that figure is wrong, 8,810. Write that down. 8,810 promises. I know you were just dying to know the number this morning. That's why I went through the hard work of figuring it out for you, for us. But church, we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises like what? Can't just hit the subject and and go on to the next, you know, the means of shared. Promises like Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isaiah 1, 18, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. John 6.37, all those the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Acts 2.21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. John 7.38, as I mentioned earlier, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. John 14.3, Jesus promised, I will come back and take you with me that you may be where I am. John 14.19, because I live, you live also. Isaiah 40, verse 29 through 31, familiar to some of you. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. 
Proverbs 1.33, but whoever listens to me, God says, will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Romans 10, 9 and 10 should be on the lips of every Christian that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's it say? You shall be saved. I mean, 8,000, I got the wrong number up there, I kill myself, math is not my deal. 8,810. If, if somebody ever asks you, how many promises did God make in the Bible? You can safely say 8,810. They'll go, how do you know that? You can have a copy of this. <laughs> now I want to read to you something that brings all this home. Written by D.L. Moody, great preacher of the turn of the century. He says, Take the promises of God. Let a man feed for a month on the promises of God. And he will not talk about how poor he is. You hear people say, Oh, my leanness, oh, how lean I am. It is not their leanness, it is their laziness. If you would only read from Genesis to Revelation and see all the promises made by God to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Jews and the Gentiles and to all his people everywhere, if you would but spend a month feeding on the precious promises of God you wouldn't be going about complaining how poor you are. You would lift up your head and proclaim the riches of his grace because you couldn't help but to do anything else. Wow. That quote came from this book. This is All the Promises of God by William Lockyer. And that 8,810 are in here categorized waiting for you and me. He's given us... Oh, thank you for changing the number, Erica. That was great. <laughs> Praise God. Hell, give that hand clap, Doctor. All right, so we're going to have to wind up. I really wanted to at least finish this section. He, because Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then goes on to say uh, that through these, look at the verse again, uh, bring your attention, verse 4, uh, exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, that's an important line. Underline it, highlight it, circle it, circle it on the Bible to the person next to you. Through these, you, what's the word? May. Ah, there's conditional emphasis there. Because you may or you may not. But what God is saying is that I've given this to you so that you can, 
there, there's a choice involved in whether or not I'm going to feed on these promises. And if I do feed on these promises, how long is Art going to go? He's just going to keep going, isn't he? If I do feed on these promises, that through feeding on these promises, my spiritual man, guess what happens inside me? I become a partaker of divine nature. This is the means by which Christ in me, the hope of glory, becomes tangible, visible, more evident, more fleshed out. It's like, how many of us here this morning would go out into the world and say, boy, I sure hope Jesus, someone sees Jesus in me. I was talking with someone recently and they were, they were getting cut off in the lane and all of a sudden the expletives came and, you know, there's like, oh, hold on, you know. Not that that's happened to anybody in here. And not that every Christian, you know, handles every moment perfectly, but how wouldn't you like to just know that they're seeing Jesus in you and me? That's my prayer every day, and I, I miss the mark, and I, Lord, can help me go out, miss the mark, Lord, can help me. But, hey, as we go along, we become partakers. More of him is seen in us in our nature, his nature in us. That through these, they are the means by which we are sharing a divine nature and there's an escape that's promised. By that nature, gluing itself to us, we are then promised the escape of worldly corruption. Would you like to be promised that you will escape worldly corruption? Peter says, by the mouth of the Lord, that that escape is a promise. First Corinthians tells us that there is no temptation that is overtaking you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful that he will not give unto you more than you are able to bear. But with that temptation will provide for you the way of escape. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's all about Jesus. And I look at this, perhaps you look at it for the first time in this kind of depth this morning and you go, my goodness, look what God gave me to start out with. Why would he come along and say, now add, if he hadn't already given? And he says, no, before I even get into what I'm going to exhort you, my, my child, to add to your faith, I'm going to tell you what I've given you. I've given you faith, my power, everything that pertains to life and godliness. 808,010 exceedingly great and precious promises, the means by which you can share in a divine nature and 
experience the promise of an escape from worldly corruption. Wow. I say, okay. <laughs> sign me up, God. And if you say, sign me up, in effect, what we're saying is, okay, I get it, Lord. Let me feed on these promises that I might fully understand what you have already given me in Christ. And when we pick this up again, we will then, then, and only then, be able to begin to start with him saying to us, now be diligent to add to your faith as he does in verse 5, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, and then we'll get into those, those characteristics. But for now, walk in what God has given you. Take each thing as a holy gift. The gift is there. comes in salvation. Open it. Unwrap it. Put it on. Wear it. Own it. In Jesus' name, will you close with me a word of prayer? Keep dropping me. I loved that, that verse. I just couldn't get past it, so that's why I took so long with it with you. Trust that you are blessed by it as well. Let's ask him. Lord, this morning we, we need you to seal these truths, these facts, these deep things uh, in us that as we leave this house as we walk away from this time together that we have a greater larger understanding of all that you have done for us and what you have given us Lord we, we are humbled we are humbled by what you've done And we're all needy this morning, Lord. There isn't any one of us that doesn't need to appropriate these truths in our lives. Help us to do so as we go through the week ahead. Lord, we love you this morning. We just want to say thank you. And the only way we know how is to worship you. In 
Jesus' name.